Hi everyone, I'm Sarah. And I'm Nicolette. And you're listening to the Her Beautiful Hustle podcast. We are two women on a mission to help and inspire other women just trying to live their best lives. Come tell us your story. Wanted you could get it, just a diamond in the rough, and you always shine bright, even when things get tough. Keep your head held high, straighten out your crown. Here to pick you up whenever you feeling down. Remember to never give up and keep pushing through. Believe in yourself, dreams do come true. Hard work, dedication, and commitment is the key. Keep showing up, being all that you could be. Just know that you're not alone. Be proud of your success. Stay focused on the prize, more peace, no stress. Gotta live your best life. Bask in all your glory. We promote women empowerment. Come tell us your story. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in. Before we kick off this week's episode, we wanted to give a little bit of a heads up about some of the topics that you're going to hear in this week's episode. We do talk about mental health and some of the more raw, harder parts that go along with that. There is a mention of suicidal thoughts and there is definitely discussion around trauma. So if those are triggering for you, just skip this episode and please tune into our next. Sarah, Liz's episode is still so much on my mind. I just am so appreciative of how honest and how raw she was with just talking about her journey with mental health from her teenage years to where she is now being a mom. And wow, what a story. Yeah, she is so vulnerable in this episode. And it's, you know, probably one of the more serious episodes we've done. You know, we don't do the fun lightning round at the end, but um, it still was such a great conversation. She also gives some great advice to anyone who is maybe working with a therapist now or in a certain type of therapy that they feel deep down just isn't working for them and what to do about that. Yeah, she, like you said, I I agree. I'm still thinking about that conversation. We, again, are just so grateful to Liz. Um, I hope you enjoy this episode. There are so many takeaways. So without further ado, here is Liz Rodriguez-Soic. Yes, thanks, Liz. Hi, everyone. Thanks so much for joining. We have Liz Rodriguez-Soic with us this evening, this morning, this afternoon, whenever you're listening to this. We are so honored to not only have had her as a featured female on our Instagram page, but she is here with us live for our podcast. And she is a woman who has experienced life. And I love how she says this about herself. She has risen from the ashes and she has done it looking fierce. And boy, is that the truth. So (laughs) stay with us in this epic story of Liz's life of just, you know, all the things that, that she's encountered throughout her, her childhood, her teens, twenties into her adult life now, and how she has just overcome so many obstacles with such a positive outlook. I mean, it's absolutely incredible, Liz. So I'm going to pause talking and we are going to dive right into you. So welcome, Liz. Thanks so much for being here again. (laughs) Thank you for having me. So you have a wild story here and we're going to start right back with your parents. If you can just kind of give us a little bit about who your parents are, where they're from, what is your foundation? Okay. So, uh, my parents, uh, they are both of Puerto Rican descent. They were both born and raised in Puerto Rico. 
And uh, my mother is a black Puerto Rican and my father is a white Puerto Rican um, or was a white Puerto Rican. So I, I see myself as a caramel colored blend. And uh, so I, the question of race was always tricky for me. It, it wasn't an easy box to check off in those applications, like for college and all those other things. Because um, Puerto Rican is not a race, it's an ethnicity. So when race came to mind, it was like, do I check off black? Do I check off white? Do I check off mixed? Do I check off other? Do I check off do not want to answer? So I already started off confused. And then, um, yeah, so my dad, I say was because he passed away when I was seven. Um, I don't remember him at all. I have no memory of him. I, I don't, I couldn't pick out a picture of him in a photo album. Do you no look memory. like him at all, Liz? I have no idea because I don't know what he looks like. Okay. Yeah, and people don't really speak about him to me at all. They, they never really did. I was his angel, I was his baby, but he was not very nice to my mother. So yeah, um, and my mother, she's still here. She's 78, she's amazing. She's a rock star. She is the epitome of strength and resiliency. But growing up, she was very difficult to deal with. She was, as, as fiercely as she loved us, she was also very cold. She was very emotionally invalidating. Like she, there was, there wasn't time to be sad. There wasn't time to mourn. There wasn't time to stumble. There wasn't time for any of that. It was just, you had to keep on going. Don't stop. And anything else was just wrong. So that was really, it was really hard to reconcile all of that, to, to see that, yes, she did love us because she busted her behind to come to a a country and as an adult and she didn't know the language and she had kids and she was raising them alone and and do all that but at the same time she was really hard on us and really cold and so it was hard to deal with all of that and um Liz can I just yeah. ask you a question sure so when do you think you were able to kind of see your mom as a person and rather not your mom to be able to have that insight about of kind of it sounds like you have a, um, a pretty open mind to, to considering all that she probably went through to have her have to have to survive in that mode. I mean, that's what I yeah. would yeah. imagine. It, it, it took me, it took years of therapy and years of hindsight. I was probably close to 30 hmm. before I, I realized she did the best she could with what she knew. I asked that only because that's like a revelation that I've had in the last, you know, couple of years of being able to really see my parents as people. And mm -hmm. there was something really almost relieving when I was able to take that perspective. So just curious to see what, what, how old you were when you, you had that um, ability to see them like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, I, I distinctly remember a conversation I had with her over the phone when I was 28 and I was sitting in my, in the house that I owned. And I was talking to her and I said, mom, I was a mistake, wasn't I? I honestly thought I was a mistake because I was 
She was 36 when she had me and my father was 42. I was the only product of their relationship and they both had children from previous relationships. And I thought I had to have been a mistake. They didn't have, a, they didn't have any money. They didn't have anything. How could they have me? And she told me in that phone call, mistake, are you, in, are you kidding? We tried for you for almost 10 years. Oh, wow. Wow. So it is. Thank, thank God you had the guts to ask that. Yeah. Had you been wondering that for a long time? For my entire life. Yeah. Wow. But wow. I grew up thinking I was a mistake. I was, I was convinced that I, well, my sister told me I was adopted and, but I was like, yeah, I, there's something wrong. I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here. I always felt like I shouldn't be there, but Yeah my whole life, I just felt like I shouldn't have been there. When did, when did your mom move to the United States? Um, in the early seventies, I think my sister was about two, which would have been 71. Okay. It's hard to say because I was born in 1980. Mm-hmm. So everything before me, I, very few people told me about, I hear bits and pieces very few bits and pieces. I don't get much. <laughs> I think my wife gets more stories than I do now, which is infuriating to me. Yeah. Like I'm a part of this family. Why am I, why have I not heard this story? Um, but you know, it is what it is, but yeah, I, they came here. She came here when she was with my three siblings or my three half siblings in the early seventies. I believe after she divorced um, their father. Okay. Yeah. And then I believe they, she met my father and then I was born several years later. Okay. So with the different sets of siblings that you have, Liz, do you have any relationship with any of them? Um, well, my father had two daughters before me in the seventies and I don't, I've never met them. I don't know their names. Um, my mother's three children, I grew up knowing as my, as my siblings, I I would be yelled at if I referred to them as half siblings, they were my siblings. Um, my oldest brother passed away in 2008. My sister, we are estranged, unfortunately. And my brother, um, he lives in New Jersey and we speak on occasion, but we're not very close. Does your mom still have um, a relationship with them? Um, not as my brother, not so much. My brother's very aloof. Um, he's very standoffish. She doesn't really talk much. Um, and my sister, she's she's a whole case. <laughs> she's a special case. So um, <laughs> I don't think they have a relationship, as far as I know. Um, I mean, but I, I, I know- talk to my mother almost every day. How sweet. 78. She probably has a lot of spice to her. Oh my gosh. She does. <laughs> the, um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you've given us this kind of backstories because it really all speaks to like, um, not only have you like risen from the ashes, but some, sometimes it sounds like it must've been pretty like you doing it by yourself. It kind of, I, oh, I felt like I was alone surrounded by people. Interesting. 
I was always surrounded by people, but I, I felt the most alone. Was there a, a turning point you think, Liz, when you were just like, okay, like I am going to have to be like my own hero here and I need to start taking care of myself. I know that's really where, where you've moved to now, but, but like what age do you think that you really embraced that mindset to be like, you know what? I, I have control over my destiny and I'm not going to, my story's not ending this way. It's not going to be alone. It's not going to be living a life. I don't want to live. It's not going to be, you know, you're going to be what you could be. That's a good question. Um, I want to say probably high school into college, probably the end towards the end of high school. Because everybody, of course, the end of high school, you're like, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, I was, yeah, I'd probably say high school because I I went to my, the first college I went to was Long (laughs) Island University um, out in Brookville, Long Island. It was CW Post Campus. And I went there um, because it was far enough where I could dorm, but close enough that I could visit my mom if I needed to, because I didn't want to be too far away from her. Um, and that was, that was really cool. Um, and I thought, yeah, I could, I could control my life and I can do what I want to do, but then, you know, life got in the way and things happen. What were some of the the tools, some of the thoughts that you had in your twenties in college, just to share with our listeners of anyone who might be that same age as you, who are just, just kind of struggling with similar situations. Like what, what helped you to keep going? What was the mindset? What was, what did you, what was your self-talk like? Um, my twenties were very rough. I don't remember a good chunk of my twenties, my early twenties. Um, and it's, it's for a sad reason because of my childhood and because of everything that I've been through, my brain tended to dissociate. I would tend to just check out mm-hmm. and not be present for what I was experiencing. So there's chunks of time that I don't remember. There are experiences that I should remember that I don't. Mm-hmm. Um, and my early twenties, part of, yeah, that's part of that. So, um, I, I think more of what I should have done differently rather than what I did, right. What I should have done differently. And what I should have done differently was get out of my own way. I was in my own way a lot. I thought <laughs> I knew we all in their 20s. I think, though, I oh think a lot of 20 year olds are, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I was stubborn to the point that I was, it was self-destructive and I, someone should have said, you know, is your way working? Because it looks like it's not. So (laughs) would you have been able to hear that though? It's such a tricky age when you, you know, you need someone to say that to you, but whether you're actually going to listen to them or not is a whole other. (laughs) That's true. That's true. Yeah. But in my, but in my twenties, I, I remember because in my twenties was when my mental illness really got, it really got kicked up mm-hmm. and I was in the hospital a lot. 
because I was really ill. I was really depressed and I was really emotionally unstable and I was like a raw nerve and my moods were fluctuating like mad and I was going all over the place. I just, I didn't want to hear it. People were telling me things that I should be hearing and I didn't want to hear it. And there were, I was in a type of therapy that just wasn't for me. Mm-hmm. And so I was in and out of the hospital, in and out of therapy, just like nothing's going to help me. Nothing's going to help me. And then finally somebody, I remember this social worker named Charles, the social worker named Charles at North Central Hospital in the year 2000. I'll never forget him. And he wore the best suits. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> but Charles, so um, he said, did anyone ever mention something called dialectical behavior therapy? And I said, I have never heard that before. What is it? So he showed me this workbook for dialectical behavior therapy. And this psychologist named Marsha Linehan from the University of Washington developed this therapy, this type of evidence-based cognitive behavioral therapy in the 1980s to help hard to treat uh, patients with suicidal ideation and history of self-harm. And um, eventually it became the, the standard for people with borderline personality disorder and mood disorders and, and the like. And I had never heard of it. So I read the skills book. I took it home. He lent it to me and I took it home and I read it cover to cover and it just resonated with me. And I'm like, this makes sense. Finally, I don't have to be in group therapy, swinging my arms in the air like a damn tree. (laughs) And I don't have to do art therapy and music therapy. I mean, if that helps you, that's wonderful. Sure. But it didn't help me. Right. It wasn't for me. So I read this and I'm like, I went to Charles like two days later and I said, Charles, I need this. This is what I need. I don't need the therapy that I'm in this hospital for. I need this dialectical stuff. Give this stuff to me. So that I was 20 then, and I was receptive to that. Now, it took me a long time to finally kick it into high gear because it was a lot of work. It wasn't easy. So Liz, can you kind of give us the cliff notes of, I'm not, I'm not familiar with that type of therapy. So oh, it's, what would okay. an average session look like? What were things that you were working on? Just, just so that other people can know what it is. And did you do it with Charles or did you have, did he just suggest it? No, see, he suggested it. And he said Mm -hmm. there was this program and um, it was St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital in Manhattan, because I was still living in the Bronx at the time. So it was St. Luke's Roosevelt Hospital and on 57, 58th street on the West side of Manhattan. And it was a partial hospitalization program. So it was like you were in the hospital where you had the day, service. So you had group therapy, individual therapy, medication management, but you went home at the end of the day. So you show up at nine in the morning and you stay till like four in the afternoon and you go home. Mm-hmm. And it was five days a week and it was for five months and it was intensive therapy. And you go there and they gave you homework and you had to report on your symptoms of like negative self-talk and ruminating thoughts, um, urges to self-harm, suicidal thoughts, things like that. And you had to report back on it and talk to your therapist about it, talk to the group about it, work your way through these emotions. And dialectical, the word dialectical meant um, 
bringing two opposites together. So in the case of dialectical behavior therapy, it's bringing acceptance and change together where you learn to accept what you can't change, but you also learn to change what you can. Hmm. So I love that you take the power back. You, where I once felt powerless. Now I have power. Yeah. That is what le- drew me to it. And mm-hmm. it's, it consists of four, at least in the back then, I think now they've extended it, but it consists of four different modules, two of which are for acceptance and two of which are for change. And they are uh, mindfulness. So to be aware of yourself and your surroundings, emotion regulation, distress tolerance, and interpersonal effectiveness. And in each module, you get taught skills, like actual tangible skills that you can use to manage your day-to-day life. And they said you can, whatever skills work for you, great. Whatever skills don't work for you, leave it. Don't use them again. Right. I just loved the flexibility. I love that I had the power to just manage my own life. I love the realness of it all. It was just great. And it, it just revolutionized my life. Liz, was that like the first time you ever like felt grounded? Like you did have control knowing like if, if your mental health was something that just was really hard for you up until that point? Absolutely. Wow. And it wasn't instantaneous. It mm-hmm. It was like with any skill, like none of us got into behind the wheel of a car for the first time and knew how to drive on the highway. Like we all had to learn that skill. It was all acquired. So DBT was the same way. Like we didn't, I didn't go in there and they didn't give me a book and I read it and say, okay, well, this is all second nature to me now. Like none of it was second nature. I hated it. I hated changing what I was used to doing because it just wasn't it didn't feel right to me at first, Mm -hmm. but I had to keep asking myself, my, is my way right now? Is it working for me? No, it's not. Okay. Well then let me try this way and see if it works. And it was working despite how much I hated it. It did work. So I kept doing it. And the more I did it, the easier it got. And then it became second nature. And now I don't need index cards reminding me of my skills anymore because it's, it's automatic. It's just, it's great. That's great. Are you still doing sessions now? I don't do like strict DBT sessions now. I'm still in therapy. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's more, it's loosely based but it's not, I don't do homework. I don't do things like that. I've, I've kind of progressed from there. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. But I still, if I, I, if I need a touch up, then I, I get it. That That's how I refer to my my therapist. Now I feel like I'm at a point, I just go for maintenance. Like exactly. I need to, <laughs> you know, that's freshen great. up a bit as you just put it. <laughs> exactly. Well, I mean, there, there's so many questions I have in all of this. So like how long of a period of your life was it that you were like in the intense module work, like really working the program or working the therapy? Let me see. I started DBT intensely in January of 2001. And I want to say till 2004, 
2004 or 2005, but it wasn't like nine to five every day. Like I did that for five months and then I did outpatient Mm -hmm. where I just saw a therapist once a week and then just carried on with my day. And it, it, I realized like I had to change every part of my life in order to be happy. Like I couldn't, I couldn't do it halfway. Mm-hmm. I noticed for me, for me, I couldn't do it halfway. It just, it wouldn't have worked. I had to address every part of my life that were giving me problems and, and, and manage those parts. I couldn't ignore any of them. And that was hard because I, I like to avoid, I like to push things away that are too painful. Hence why I dissociate, but I had to face every part. I was asking you the timeline because I think it's so important to highlight how mental health is just not for some people that it's something that you can just go to a therapy session one time and be completely relieved of what's bothering you or, or what led you to maybe going to therapy. Like there are things that you are like woven throughout who you are that have happened to you or you've experienced or that, you know, subconsciously that you think about that really takes time to work through all of that. So thanks so much for sharing your timeline with us. Cause I hope that other people that will resonate with them, that if they are, you know, first starting out in therapy, that to stick with it because it isn't something that, you know, is just going to happen overnight that you've got to keep working it and, and working when it works for you. Like, I love how you said you did the art therapy, the dance therapy, those might be perfect and work for someone, but if that's not what's meeting your need, I'm, I'm just so impressed that you just kept, you know, they were able to say that, that, that was, this will work for me, but that won't. Yeah. And I, and also, so along those lines, what advice do you have for someone who maybe feels like their current therapist maybe isn't a good fit for them, them, or that type of therapy might not be right, but they really have no idea what other types of therapy are out there. Um, do you have advice for, for those people? It's 2022. I would Google. I would Google, I would call my insurance company and ask you know, ask them, I would call my primary care doctor and ask them, I would call the doctors giving my medication if I'm on medication and ask them, ask, talk, because Mm -hmm. being quiet, you're not going to get anywhere. And therapists understand that there's different therapy that works for different people. Absolutely. With different so you're not going to hurt their feelings if no. you say, this isn't working for me. <laughs> no, nice. You no. have to say that. And I've known therapists that will say, you know, that will tell their clients that this is working for us. Like yeah. it goes both ways too. So, you know, clients shouldn't feel bad about hurting their therapist's no. feelings at all, yeah. at, no. all. <laughs> yeah. at all, at all. I guess I just, um, you know, if someone's struggling with it and this is going to be different for everyone, so we might not have the answer now, but how do you know when to keep sticking with it and when it's actually not right and you need to try something new? Or what was it like for you, Liz? Did you have like a, was it not until you had the right thing in front of you that you knew? I've had many therapists over the past 24 years. Mm -hmm. And I've had therapists that I've had to say, you know, I'm sorry, but this isn't going to work out. I think it took me 
I think a few, maybe three or four sessions it took me to realize, okay, we're not going to get anywhere. Mm -hmm. And what helped me was to know what I want going in. If I didn't, when I didn't know what I wanted going in, it took me a lot longer to realize what was working and what wasn't. But if I knew going in, okay, I need a therapist that can provide A, B, and C. Then I had benchmarks for them to meet. And if they didn't meet them by a certain time frame that I thought was reasonable, then I can say, you know, it's time to move on. And for everyone that's different, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's all very subjective. So um, yeah, I say just have a plan in mind. Yeah. If you were to go into therapy, know what you need ahead of time. Think of a reasonable time frame. Emphasis on reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, to begin to uh, work towards those goals. If those don't happen, you, I, I have even mentioned it to the therapist. Like, listen, I came here hoping to reach these goals. We're not reaching these goals. Do you have any intention on reaching these goals? Like be upfront and be honest. Right. They're there to, to treat you. They're there to help you. Right. You're not doing them any favors by being there and being quiet. I'm sure, especially if you're paying a a high fee for them to exactly. So I would be your own best advocate. Like, listen, you know, this is what I need. Can you provide that to me? Because Mm -hmm. if not, I'm going to have to go elsewhere. Yeah, that's a good point. So so Liz, up until this point, um, what advice, so what you're in your mid twenties, right? By now we've talked up it too. That's where we're roughly at. Okay. So like, what would, what advice would you have given your younger self? Listen, no, really listen. You have to know you, you'd really need to listen, Liz, you really need to, (laughs) your life depends on you listening and taking this in. Cause I was so, I was so distrustful of everyone for everything. I, I didn't trust a single human being really. And anyone that tries to tell me anything, I'm like, yeah, right. Whatever. I just, but if I could tell anything to my younger self, just listen, you really need to listen. And I see a lot of 20 somethings, not a lot, but I've seen some 20 somethings that remind me of me when I was 20 something. And they, it's the ones I've seen, they just, they have their, they are incapable of listening. They're so immersed in their sorrow and in their pain that they, 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 they not allowing outside influences to come in mm-hmm. and it's sad. And it reminds me so much of me. I wonder too, and I'm, I'm not a doctor at all, but I think your brain is still developing until like your mid twenties, at least for females. So I wonder if that has anything to do with, you know, not being maybe even mature enough to listen. It could be. I don't know. I don't know either. I don't know. I'm going to have to look into that. (laughs) Would you've also said not only to listen to, to people who are trying to help you, but listen to yourself. Like, do you think you had some of the answers? You just couldn't hear them. I don't know. I probably did. 
if I if I really had to think about it, I probably did. I was in denial about a lot of things. Yeah. So yeah. without getting into it, I'm sure you had a good reason to be. I mean, you you've yeah, had a story. So <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So mid mid-20s, where does Liz's life go from here? Because we've got we've got a bit of a decade to go, right? Yeah. Yeah, but um little bit more we're the same age so I know how old you are <laughs> we're so young Liz <laughs> oh my god I don't feel it I don't feel it at all. you look it you look it <laughs> oh thank you um mid-20s I got married tell us about that who did you marry I married a, a guy that I had been dating for two and a half years and I loved him I did he was the best guy out of all the guys I've dated. And he was very kind and very nice. And he was a good man. And uh, I was 25 when I got married. I got married Christmas Eve. And uh, I got married Christmas Eve so I could remember my wedding date. I'm very forgetful. And I remember I had a bad feeling about the wedding day. Everything was going wrong. None of my friends were there. And... After the wedding, the ceremony, our mothers were talking about when we were going to have children. It, it was literally like two minutes after the ceremony. And I was like, we just got married. Why are they talking about children? But it just, it didn't feel right. So that's what I did. Did you know why it didn't feel right, Liz? At the time, I didn't know, to be honest. I, I was just, at the time, no, I didn't know. I, I just, I didn't know. I just knew that that's what I had to do. It was like paying taxes. Nobody likes paying taxes, but you have to do it. So you do it. So I figured when that's it's the same thing. I, and then I just had to do it. So I did it. And then I moved from the Bronx a week after getting married. I convinced him to move to Albany and leave all of his family and his friends. And I left my family and my friends and we didn't know a soul. And um, we moved to Albany. It was rough. That was rough. Um, I started a new school, went to college, and I was on supplemental security income. I was on SSI, a disability for my uh, bipolar disorder. And he was working at a Stewart's. So we, were, we didn't have a lot of money. So I started a new school, got married, moved away from home all within a week's time, like two weeks time. Yes. And... Wow. It was a lot to take on. And because I did DBT for so many years now, I thought, you know, I got this. I got all my skills and got my little index cards. And I'm a recovered borderline personality disorder person. And um, I'm taking my meds. I did everything I was supposed to do the way I was supposed to do it. I can do this. No. And I would get triggered by innocuous events all the time and my body would react as if I was in danger. Like my body would either shut down or I would wanna hide behind furniture or things like that. And it was, I didn't know why. So I kept having to do more work in therapy to figure that out. It was, it was rough, but um, I think by the time I was like 28, I was hospitalization again and I had 
ECT treatments. I had electro electroconvulsive therapy for my depression because medication wasn't helping. Therapy wasn't helping. And I was desperate to not be so depressed and so miserable. And then I realized, what am I doing? This, I can't keep doing this. I have to look at myself to see what, what am I doing wrong? Or what, am, what do I need to change? So I saw what needed to be changed and I realized where I wasn't happy and ended up getting a divorce which was the most embarrassing thing I had to do. One of the most embarrassing things I had to do. It sounds like it was the right thing. Yeah, ultimately for us. He wasn't happy either. Mm -hmm. I wasn't easy to be with. And we were roommates the last three years of our marriage. Anyway, we slept in different rooms and Mm. we worked different schedules, worked different shifts. Because I eventually got off a disability after being on it for seven years. And I got my job with the state. We worked different schedules and we were roommates. So I went to him one day and I said, what do you think about us getting a divorce? And he said, okay, okay, no problem. And then it got really bad when one of my best friends told him that I was interested in women and that that was part of why I wanted a divorce. And that's when he got angry. And that was the end of our friendship mm-hmm. and, the, and the end of the friendship with a lot of my closest friends from downstate who I still don't speak to and I haven't spoken to in, since then, since 2009. What do you think the, the reason for doing that was, telling your story? Oh, I still don't know. Yeah. I still don't know. I'm not even sure which one of them did. Mm-hmm. Um. One of them, one of my friends actually married him. Hmm. Well, the one that, that threw my one that threw my bachelorette party married him. And they're still married, I think. So maybe that had to do with it. I don't know. Yeah. I I lost I lost friendship with him, who I haven't spoken to in many years. And I lost the friendship with, you know, friends from high school, friends from college. Everyone at my bachelorette party, I haven't spoken to them in over 10 years. And what it's, a pivotal point in your life. I mean, yeah, they all thought was I was your, crazy. Yeah. So who, who are your, who supported you during this time? Um, people I knew for five minutes comparatively. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the people that knew me since I was, you know, a teenager or a preteen, they were gone. And I, I say such a pivotal point in your life. I mean, that's, it's so packed with so many moments. So it's not like, it's like who supported you for saying that you were a lesbian? Who supported you for your marriage ending? Who supported you for your friendships? There's like so many moving pieces in that yeah. one portion of your life. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Now, um, how aware was your mom in all of this? Was she able to support you? Was that? A- My mom, I was so scared to tell her. Mm-hmm. I told her when I was, I think I was 17. I was like, mom, I'm a lesbian, like for an April Fool's joke. And she was in the kitchen cooking and she's like, don't, don't tell me that that's not funny. And I'm like, mm-hmm. mom, I'm just kidding. No, no, seriously. That's not funny. Don't you ever yeah. say that again. 
So I was like, okay. So I was, since then, I was terrified. I was like, I can't tell my mom this. Like she would freak out. But I, I actually told her from my car in the parking lot of my therapist's office, like outside of my therapist's office, right before a therapy session in case my mother freaked out, I could talk about it in therapy. That was smart. And, uh, and um, when I told her, She's like, oh, well, are you happy? Yeah, mom, finally happy. And she's like, that's all that matters then. That's great. So, okay. Thanks, mom. That was a shocker. Yeah. What was it like leading up to having that conversation with her? How were you feeling? What were you nervous about? I was nervous she wouldn't talk to me again. Because you're a lesbian. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Not necessarily the divorce, because she's divorced, but the lesbian part. I was nervous she wouldn't talk to me again. Because I, I didn't, already didn't have a father. Right. So, and my mother, had, she had, she had a cancer when I was a teenager. And she, we had this whole discussion when I was in high school. And she, we had this whole discussion on who I was going to live with in the event that cancer killed her. So we had like all, all these contingencies in place. So like, okay, if I die, this is what you do. So at like 15 years old, I'm like planning for my mother's death, right? Yes. So that freaked me out. So I was thinking that same, I had all those same emotions all over again, except for a different reason. Whew, piece of water, <laughs> not even my story. <laughs> Liz, you have been through it. And we are only half, we're doing two parts with Liz because Liz has so much of a story. We're getting, we're probably about five minutes away from part one ending. Um, So much to, to just reflect on all that you've said and your journey so far. I can't imagine how many people are going to listen to this and just connect with your story on some level. And it's just, I'm just so grateful that you had the, the guts to share this with us. And I'm just so, I I'm just so honored that you were so raw and said all of the hard things, because I know that you're not alone in this. And I know other people shouldn't have to feel alone either. Absolutely yeah. not. Absolutely not. I'm not the only so, one. So in part two, we get to talk about your, your career, your wife, your daughter. I mean, there's a story in that too. Liz and her daughter are in a book because of how <laughs> just made her way into this world in a really hard way. And now she's in a book because of it. So mm-hmm. I mean, stay tuned for part two. Um, Liz, you really have risen from the ashes in so many ways. Goodness. I, I don't even, normally we do the whole like this or that, and it just seems so <laughs> relevant yes, right now silly to do. <laughs> um, sorry no, no sorry we appreciate this sorry at all any closing words until we get into part two just anything um that you want to leave the listeners with I don't regret anything I've been through um I wear everything like a badge of honor it's made me as strong as I am it's made me as wise as I am it's made me as resilient as I am. And I appreciate all the good days I have today. I, I just, I appreciate all the good days 
so much more than I ever did because of everything I went through. There is such thing as recovery and there is such thing as getting better. And uh, that, that's all I got. Yeah. Liz, thanks Beautiful. so much. Yes, part thank one you. is over. Thank we'll you. move on to part two. Thanks everyone for listening. Thank you for listening to the Her Beautiful Hustle podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Her Beautiful Hustle. You can follow Nicolette at The Good LC and Sarah at Sass Tips. If you like this episode, please do us a favor and leave us a review. We would so appreciate it. If you would like to be a guest or know someone who would be a great guest on our show, email herbeautifulhustle at gmail.com or DM us on Instagram. Come tell us your story.